Welcome to For the Church, a podcast for the flock of Zion Presbyterian Church in Columbia, Tennessee. We want to help you think biblically about everyday matters. Zion Church exists to join Jesus in His mission to reach people with the gospel and then to equip His people to worship and serve. I'm Paul Joyner, the senior pastor, and I'm back with my regular conversation partner and friend, John Kelly. In our last episode, we talked about how our form of church government works and the role that our General Assembly plays. This week, we will talk through our study committee report on human sexuality. In 2019, our General Assembly adopted an overture to, quote, study the topic of human sexuality with particular attention to the issues of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and transgenderism, and to prepare a report. The moderator then appointed at that General Assembly in 2019 a seven-member committee who produced this report that we're going to talk through in May of last year. And then at this General Assembly, we both received the report and then commended it as, quote, biblically faithful declaration. Now, this may surprise some, but there is a lot of false information floating around in social media about the PCA. And along those lines, it may surprise some that we are not considering ordaining homosexuals. And to be honest, when someone says this, they are either poorly informed or just simply guilty of slander. Also, as a denomination, I do not think we are becoming more progressive. Most of our votes at the last General Assembly reflected a biblically faithful church who was also focused on the mission of Jesus, and that is the PCA is as it has been from the beginning, faithful to the scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. And I think this study committee report reflects that. It's evidence of that being the heart of the PCA. It was, the study committee report, widely accepted without much debate. And the reason that it wasn't debated is because it handles the scriptures clearly, interacts with our doctrinal standards robustly, and then interacts with actual people to help them walk faithfully with Jesus. In other words, it wasn't just a statement for the sake of making statements, but was a study whose end was the glory of Christ manifested in the lives of sinners. So what we're going to do today is going to talk through these 12 statements that the report makes. And these statements function as Cliff Notes version of the entire report. I'm going to include a link to the entire report in the show notes of this episode so that if you want to get deeper into the weeds, um, you can find them there. All right, so well, let's talk through this um, report. We're going to we're just going to go um, statement by statement through these. I'll read them and, and do a running commentary, and then John is going to interrupt me when I'm no longer making sense. Um, so... Statement one on marriage. Yeah, I like that it begins with marriage and not um, desire, which is uh, a lot of where I think we ultimately need to have conversation, you know, about about desire. But uh, if we're going to frame this biblically, we start with marriage, right? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's a number of starting points. Um, I think in this cultural moment, it's it is a good place to start. Um, You know, the yes, I think it's a good place to start. So let me start here with marriage. Um, We affirm, this is the PCA, we affirm that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. 
sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be cherished and is reserved for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Marriage was instituted by God for the mutual help and blessing of husband and wife, for procreation and the raising together of godly children, and to prevent sexual immorality. Marriage is also a God-ordained picture of the differentiated relationship between Christ and the church. All other forms of sexual intimacy, including all forms of lust and same-sex sexual activity of any kind, are sinful. Nevertheless, and this is going to be the structure of this report, a statement and then also a nevertheless. Um, Nevertheless, we do not believe that sexual intimacy in marriage automatically eliminates unwanted sexual desires. And that that language of Mm -hmm. unwanted sexual desire is going to come up a lot, Mm -hmm. or unwanted desire is going to come up a lot. Um, And we talked earlier um, about... Um, and I've talked with many about how I really think that the underlying issues that that we have mined in this discussion um, over the last four years within our denomination is to be recover is to recover or retrieve a healthier understanding of how the Christian life works, what it means to be a human being with desires, how sin has corrupted our desires, and how Jesus in the work of sanctification is. Um, is remaking our desires. So, so when it says unwanted sexual desires, I mean that that presupposes what desires ought to be or what that person's desires are. Yeah. So unwanted sexual desires are, you know, uh, often when talking to someone with same sex attraction, they're like, "I don't want this. Like this isn't mm-hmm. what I don't want to be fighting with this." But I think you know, every human being um, is is wrestling with some form of unwanted desire. And probably in my experience pastorally, every person I've ever talked to has, has struggled with some form of unwanted sexual desire, uh, whether that's with pornography or lust or coveting another man's wife or uh, same-sex attraction. They're like, you know, I'd really love to be done with this. I'd really like for it mm-hmm. to be gone away with. And that is going to come up and the statement on temptation and the statement on big theological okay. word concupiscence. Um, so, Did you say concubines? Those are- <laughs> no, not concubines. Oh. <laughs> concupiscence. Not uh, so. It goes on. Nor this is in the nevertheless section. Nor that all sex within marriage is sinless. Um, and it cites the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, paragraph 5. We all stand in need of God's grace for sexual sin and temptation, whether married or not. Moreover, sexual immorality is not an unpardonable sin. Um, and I think much of, uh, much of the press that the church has gotten is that it really does put it in that category of unpardonable sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I appreciate them saying, no, look, that's it doesn't go in, nothing goes into that category, maybe except, well, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but we're not going to go there today. There is no sin so small that it does not deserve temp- damnation, nor no sin so big that it cannot be forgiven. Um, and that's almost direct quote from um, our standards from the Westminster Confession of Faith. There is hope and forgiveness for all who repent of their sin and put their trust um, in Christ. 
And, and so it's just the recognition that um, marriage doesn't fix the problem. Marriage is glorious and is God's design, but don't think that when you get married, um, you're going to cease to wrestle with sexual sin. Yeah, and the, that marriage is instituted by God for the mutual help and blessing of husband and wife for the procreation. And then um, the very first sentence says, marriage is between one man and one woman, which is obviously a theme that is going to be throughout, right? Which we have, at least in in, in our culture, have have um, attempted to to call a number of things marriage. Yes, yeah, and that's you know that's that in in this debate that's true in this debate within the PCA that's just never been never a been que- a question. it's never been a question. Yeah. Um, our standards speak very clearly to this, um, and that's just never been an issue that's come up. Um, so, uh, moving on to the second statement, can, can we ahead. do one thing? So, yeah. can we just do the drive-by here of the twelve statements? Oh, sure. Uh, so, statement one is on marriage. Statement two is on the image of God. Uh, statement three, original sin. Uh, four is on desire. Five is on that big word, concupiscence. Six is on the nature of temptation, both external temptation and internal temptation, what we'll get to. Seven is on sanctification. Eight um, is on the impeccability of Christ, his inability um, to be corrupted by sin. We'll probably skip over that um, one. Uh, Statement nine is on identity. Ten is on language. Should we use the term gay in front of Christian as a modifier? Statement 11 is on friendship. Twelve is on repentance and hope. And I really appreciated that they ended there. Um, It was good to start with marriage. That was a starting point, but repentance and hope is always the ending point for any discussion. Thanks for suggesting that. Okay, statement two on the image of God. We affirm, and by the way, I think a lot of the debate around sexuality in the broader culture um, is really a, a, a discussion on what does it mean to be human. Mm-hmm. I think it's a question on anthropology and, um, and what role does, does sex and sexuality play in defining what it means to be human. Um, And so this is an important one. We affirm that God created human beings in his image, male and female. So there's that language of differentiation that was in statement one, that there is a differentiation between male and female, um, and that is because there is a differentiation between Christ and his church. Christ and his church is the model, and from that God created marriage to reflect that relationship that's straight out of Ephesians 5. Um, So we affirm that God created human beings in his image as male and female. Likewise, we recognize the goodness of the human body and the call to glorify God with our bodies. As a God of order and design, God opposes the confusion of man as woman and woman as man. While situations involving such confusion can be heartbreaking and complex, men and women should be helped to live in accordance with their biological sex. And I appreciate this, right? It starts with the scriptures. God made male and female. They are different. They are complementary. They are they are designed um, as male and female. But we understand that the fall has broken some of this, and therefore it can be heartbreaking and complex for some. Right? For some, 
Um, and and then the pastoral admonition, we should li- live light. We should encourage and instruct people to live in accordance with their biological sex. Again, now, nevertheless, we ought to minister compassionately to those who are sincerely confused and disturbed by their internal sense of gender identity. So, let me pause you. So, um, it's it's an objective. You're saying it's objective. Yes. Male and female. Okay. Yeah. And that's why, with that as a as a starting point, then the word confused and disturbed is used because it's it's relative to the it, it's that's a subjective state. The that's, confused yes, and disturbed yeah. is a subjective state with respect to the objectivity of that's correct. That's okay. a good way to say it. Yeah. So and uh, I think that is an important uh, distinction. The distinction you just made is a really important distinction when it comes to um, sort of understanding anthropology. Um, because, and again, in our current cultural moment, the emphasis is you are who you perceive yourself to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what we are saying is you are who God has designed you to be. Mm-hmm. And all of us are not there. We are all disturbed and confused. And so it shouldn't surprise us that for some, some are confused um, when it comes to their internal sense of their gender. That we have categories for that. Um, there's the objective reality that God's made us. Mm-hmm. None of us, all of us, and this is the truth of total depravity. Total depravity doesn't teach us that we're as sinful as we could be, but that we are corrupt in every part of our nature. And therefore, our internal sense of our gender, for some, might be disturbed and confused, but that shouldn't surprise us. Yeah. That just plays right into um, our, our our sense of indwelling sin, um, and therefore why we all need Jesus. So then goes on. We recognize that the effects of a fall, the fall, extend to the corruption of our whole nature, which may include how we think of our own gender and sexuality. Moreover, some persons in rare instances may possess an objective medical condition in which their anatomical development may be ambiguous or does not match their genetic chromosomal sex. Such persons are known, are also made in the image of God and should live out their biological sex in, insofar as it, it may be known. So this is, this is, that's often an objection that you hear mm-hmm. to um, however it's framed, but, but, what about line. yeah? What about the um, one who's born without dis- distinct genitalia, et cetera? Yeah, um, or or both genitalia. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so, wh- how would you answer this question? How many eyes does a human have? Uh, sometimes two, sometimes one, sometimes none. I don't. And I mean, a human. Uh, if we're going to human, the ideal human, well, a human has two eyes, right? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't diminish that fact if you say, "I know someone who's born with one eye." Oh, I see what you're getting at. That's right. Yeah, we would acknowledge, or even if uh, by um, you know accident they ha- they lose an eye, um, mm-hmm. we we would still say they lost something 
less than the ideal. That's that's not. And in the new heavens and new earth, they will mm-hmm. be um, reborn, resurrected with both eyes. Um, they will achieve their ideal self. Um, and and some of that's some of that is in this language is like you know design is more important than perception. God has designed male and female. In mm-hmm. some instances, the body may be broken so mm-hmm. that it is not whole, but when it is made whole in the resurrection, it will be male and female. Um, so design, creation, fall, redemption. Um, and that that should define what those categories, who God says and has made us to be, should define who we are, not the corruption of those designs, mm-hmm. which is to your point of two eyes, one eye, no eyes. Um, you know what it uh, who has God made us to be and who will in the resurrection of the dead will we be that should that should be the line that defines what is or what ought to be rather than our subjective experience or our brokenness our brokenness shouldn't define oughtness that's pretty technical language but does that make sense yeah um, and the image the the question of the image of God or the starting point of being created in God's image is sets us off down one path or another for a lot of the issues that we kind of some of the hot issues so that's right so homosexuality transgenderism abortion yeah if if we are ultimately products of chance not creating God's image not in have not having inherent worth then, I mean, what really is the consequence to to assert another gender or to take the life of a one who hasn't been born into this into the culture yet, and you know made a positive impact? They don't have any inherent value. Yeah, they're not creating God's image. And I think uh, you know some of this is it requires a, a great deal of humility to acknowledge that. One, I appreciate the I appreciate the pastoral emphasis. Like, hey, listen, we're not. We're not dealing in an ideal world. We're dealing in a r- mm-hmm. world that has been corrupted and broken by sin. Therefore, we're dealing with actual people. And actual people deal with there are a variety of ways that our brokenness expressed. We want to, you know, we want to not deal in the hypothetical statement making world, but the actual world where we're doing pastoral ministry and applying God's word to that. So I appreciate that. But I think in the actual world, um, we it requires an amount of humility to say. Um, I I don't I will not dictate what ought to be um, based on my experience of that because you know when you're like well let's take it back to the abortion issue this person if this person is born into the world so we always you know you take the exception of somebody who might have a you know known in utero to have physical handicap if this person is born into the world they are not who they ought to be therefore um, their life will be miserable and everybody else's life around them will be miserable so let's do the merciful thing the kind thing and just end this for them now well to me that um, I think often that that is uh, to be able to play out all the scenarios in which this person's life will you know impact others and even how they will experience oh, yeah. requires um, an assumption that I know, yeah. right? It requires um, it requires the omniscience yeah. that I'm uh, the the admission I have, and to be in that position, I have to say 
I am all-knowing and all-powerful, so I know all the possible scenarios and can therefore dictate how this is going to play out, so I'm just going to stop it now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that, you know, to go from, from – that's one of the dangers of going from ought to broken, to to place our ethics or what what should happen in this world not by design but on on broken experience um, is a is a dangerous place to be because none of us have the ability to stand and know all the possible scenarios and ways things might play out and this is why you put your hands in the uh, put your life um, in the hands of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords because he's proven his love. He's displayed his power. He's defeated sin, Satan, and death, and reigns over all creation. And so, you're like, why don't you tell me who I should be? Um, and and would and allow your gospel to reinterpret my experiences. That's going to be a theme that shows up a lot during these statements. Okay, statement three on original sin. We've hit on some of this. Something like we're not the boss, <laughs> or maybe even better, because uh, we shouldn't be the boss. Um, we're not we're not good in our own hands. Uh, statement three on original sin: We affirm that from the sin of our first parents, we have received an inherited guilt and an inherited depravity. From this original corruption, which is itself sinful and for which we are culpable, proceeds all actual transgressions. All the outworkings of the corrupted nature, um, a corruption which remains in part even after regeneration, are truly and properly called sin. Every sin, original and actual, deserves death and renders us liable to the wrath of God. We must not repent of our sin in general, and we must repent of our sin in general and our particular sins, particularly. That's straight from the confession of faith. That is, we ought to grieve for our sin, hate our sin, turn from our sin unto God, and endeavor to walk with God in obedience to His commandments. In other words, what this paragraph is saying is that there are, again, no part of us um, that is not corrupted by sin, um, and that sin originates, that corruption originates with our first parents. This is going to be an issue when we talk about desire and concupiscence. Nevertheless, God does not wish for believers to live in perpetual misery for their sins, each of which are pardoned and mortified in Christ. So Jesus deals with both the penalty and the power of sin. The penalty is pardon. The the power of sin that enslaves us from birth is mortified or put to death, or we are delivered by the cross um, from the power of sin. And then... Jesus also begins to deliver us by the presence of from the presence of sin. By the Spirit of Christ, we are able to make spiritual progress and do good works, not perfectly, but truly. Even our imperfect works are made acceptable through Christ, and God is pleased to accept and reward them as pleasing in His sight. So a word came to mind um, that I have heard um, a lot recently, mortification mortifying sin how does that relate to the uh the line here that is we ought to grieve for our sin hate our sin turn from our sin unto god and endeavor to walk with god in obedience to his commandments what is mortification of sin is that is that this whole process or is it one step in this process um so 
we will get into this, I think, a little bit on sanctification. But you know, we, uh, sanctification is the pro, you know is is the work of of the Lord Jesus to make His people holy, and it comes in in three stages. One, He definitively breaks the power of sin um, in our lives. That's through regeneration, the beginning of of the Christian life is Him definitively breaking the power of sin and setting us free. And then sin remains in us, um, and so the process of mortification is in applying the cross to remaining sin so that its power is weakened in, in us all the more. So mortification from the Latin for death, he is applying his death and resurrection in such a way that the remaining power of sin is mortified or being put to death um, in us, so that we might walk not by the spirit, um, or not walk by the flesh, but by the spirit. Um, and so, you know, this is mortification is the applying of of the death of Jesus to sin in our lives, so that um, its power is um, is we are released from its reigning power, and there, and then set on a pathway where it's it's weakened in our lives. You mentioned this earlier, and we can defer this if you'd like, but uh, about the expectation of where, uh, how far that process ought to go in our, in, on this side of heaven. Yeah. Yeah, let's get to that when we get to, uh, I think the next couple statements will um, set an expectation for how far that actually gets. Uh, but I will say this, you know, Paul does make a progression in his life. Um, there is, I think, two things that go on. One is that, that sanctification is is progressive, right? Because Jesus is the one doing the work of sanctification. We're participating in that with him. And so it is progressive, right? We, uh, but what that progression looks like is a weakening of um, sin's influence on us, but not a complete and utter deliverance from it. That is in the age to come, or to use um, Augustine's um, fourfold state of sin, um, that prior to the fall, Adam was able not to sin. After the fall, Adam and all humanity was not able not to sin. In Christ, after the work of regeneration, we are able not to sin again, but not in the same state that Adam was in because we have the remaining power of sin in us. Therefore, the Spirit fights against that and we make progress. And then in glory, the fourth state, um, able or not able to sin. Right. So we go from able to not sin, Adam, pre-fall, to not able to sin in new heavens, new earth. Can you do that in Latin? I could, but I won't bore anybody with it. Um, okay, statement four on desire. Um, and this, I think, these next few really get into the heart and probably are the most helpful um, from a pastoral perspective, but I think in the average Christian's life. These are probably the things that we experience but don't know how to put words to. Um, and the Reformed tradition has been very rich in um, our understanding of what it means to be a human being. Um, and that is that that at the core of who we are, we are lovers. Um, that we are desiring beings um, made to worship the one true living God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
um, and that in the line of Romans 1, uh, that doesn't get the desiring beings, the worshiping beings, the beings that were made for satisfaction, that doesn't get flipped, but instead what sin, the corruption of sin does is causes us to exchange it. And so we worship the created thing rather than the creator. Mm-hmm. Right? And interestingly, um, that then leads to Paul's discussion on how um, that corruption plays out in our sexuality when dealing with homosexuality. Um, he's really dealing with the desire level in Romans 1 um, when he gets to that, and then he lists a, a bunch of sins. So this stuff on desire, I think, um, is very helpful. Um, it's very biblical, therefore it's very helpful. Statement for desire. We affirm not only that our inclination towards sin is a result of the fall, right, that we're prone, kind of you know, bent towards sin, but that our fallen desires in themselves are sinful. The desire for an illicit end, whether in sexual desire for the person of the same sex or sexual desire disconnected from the context of marriage, is itself an illicit desire. Biblical marriage. Yeah. Um, Therefore, the experience of same-sex attraction is not morally neutral. The attraction is an expression of original or indwelling sin that must be repented of and put to death. And so we're going we're going from sin as an action to sin as a power that has corrupted our desires. And and notice that it doesn't say the attraction to someone of the same sex. It says it's not morally neutral in and of itself. It is sin. But it also says it is an expression of indwelling sin. And so mm-hmm. it sort of says, you know, it sort of addresses the present cultural moment, then pulls us all back into the camp and says all of our desires are, are corrupted um, mm-hmm. by sin. Nevertheless, we must celebrate that despite the continuing presence of sinful desires and even at times egregious sinful behavior, repentant justified and adopted believers are free from condemnation through the imputed righteousness of Christ and are able to please God by walking in the spirit. Yeah. Amen. That's what I thought when I read it to you. I was like, I should stand up and sing praises to Jesus. So the, there's, there's a couple of things that I I perceive as errors. Obviously I want to hear what you think, but um, one is, the picking on, we'll say picking on, uh, the picking on homosexual sin in the, let's say, from the evangelical world. Uh, I guess those are sufficient uh, sufficient qualifiers there. Um, that being that being one error, and but the other error also being the response of, yeah, well, that's not the only. Only sin, which is a legitimate legitimate response, and I think the way they framed it here is a legitimate response. Um, but in insofar as that response says we really shouldn't talk about it, we shouldn't really focus on it. Oh yeah, and we shouldn't focus. So I think what this is saying is we shouldn't focus on it solely and pretend like this is the only sin that exists in America. Um. <laughs> But at the same time, um, 
I think this this statement does a good job of of addressing both of those errors. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yes. And I think the reason it does a good job is, is because it's going underneath the behavior to the level of desire. Um, and, and again, when we start talking this way, you may, we put all of us in this camp, right? And so you're not putting, you're not, to use the modern language, you're not othering those who are same sex attracted. Othering. I haven't heard that. Um, instead, um, what you're doing is um, you're saying you're, you're like, yes, this is this is an expression of corrupted desire and corrupted sexuality, but we're all dealing with um, this. And by the way, you can't sin your way out of Jesus. Um, you cannot repent your way out of Jesus. You can harden yourself to Him. But that those who, you know, regarding the presence of sinful desires and even at times egregious sinful behavior, which is like the entirety of the Bible, um, that uh, all of God's people have egregious sinful behavior. That's the history of redemption. Um, um, repentant, justified, and adopted believers are free from condemnation through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Right? And so, so in other words, what, one of the things they're saying is this isn't – you. It's back to the one of the earlier statements that um, there's no sin so great that it disqualifies us from Jesus, um, that we're all in sin and all, therefore, only hope is the imputed righteousness of Christ, um, His righteousness credited to our account. But also what it's saying is that the you are not saved by the direction of your sexuality. So the person who's same-sex attracted, isn't saved by becoming a heterosexual, but by repenting of sin and entrusting themselves to Christ and therefore are, um, are justified, adopted, and free from condemnation because of the finished work of Jesus. Talk about the process of sanctification as a process. I love, one of the things I love about this statement is because uh, you keep questions keep coming to my mind as you as you speak and then I'll scroll down and then it'll be the section you know two two sections down so language for instance same sex attracted uh gay christian you know the this language or uh the difference between desire and temptation which is right around the corner right yeah but i i, w- I would ask if you could say one more thing on a distinction between, I think it was in the previous section, original and actual sin? Yeah. So original sin is the corruption of our nature um, as a result of Adam's fall. He acted as our head, and therefore all uh, all that we are is corrupted um, by Adam. Um, and, and therefore, we're, you know, the, the nature that we inherit from him is a corrupted nature. That's original sin. And from that proceeds every actual sin. So that's the sort of the classic way we will say this in the Reformed world is, are you a sin? Be- do you sin because you're a sinner or are you a sinner because you sin? Um, and the answer is the, the former. I, I'm a sinner or I sin because I'm a sinner um, outside of Christ. Right? Actual sins in my life proceed from the corruption of my nature, original sin. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Does that clarify that? I have, I have confirmed my status <laughs> and 
as as having original sin by my sin. That's right. right. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and so have my children, and so will their children. Um, yes. Okay. Um, now, concupiscence. This is a, a big word um, and a big concept. And um, so, uh, and, and this is getting to that level of. Um, of whether not just so up to this point we've said that desire itself has been corrupted by sin and therefore um, our sexual desire has been um, corrupted by sin um, and so let me read this and then comment on it on concupiscence because this goes a step further and again to an area that I would think that many have not thought through we affirm that impure thoughts and desires arising in us prior to and apart from conscious act of the will are still sin. So even if I don't act on it, the desire itself is sinful. We reject the Roman Catholic understanding of concupiscence, whereby disorders, desires that afflict us due to the fall do not become sin without a consenting of the will. So... Concupiscence says the desire itself for a sinful thing is sin, even if I don't act on it. The impure thoughts and desires. Yes. So what about Jesus' temptation? Oh, I guess the temptation's next. Uh, that's that. Well, you, I just said we're going to skip over impeccability, but now that you just looped that in, we might not be able to. Um. um so it goes on. Well, I, get, I get desires, right? I mean, yeah. that's that's something we're at least fueling, mm-hmm. to say it mildly. Um, impure thoughts or the, is is impure thoughts here necessarily, um, or or does it include unwanted? Yes, intrusive. That's, ex- that's exactly something? that's okay. right. So something that you know come up and you're like whoa 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 I didn't I didn't feed that and we'll get into this in temptation and we differentiate between internal and external temptation but we've all had these experiences like where did that come from but that's to be repented of that's to re- the desire itself that's right um, arising in us prior to and apart from a conscious act of the will are still sin. I know what my afternoon looks like. <laughs> I think an experience uh, when this became a category for me, it really transformed my own wrestling with sin and progress in the Christian life. Um, because one, it took away a little bit of the shame associated with the struggling of sin. Because I'm like, that may it may not be there. There does arise in us desires that are un unsought after and un, um, unnurtured mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of the depth of our corruption. Um, that And so I don't have to – I can just stop in that moment and say, uh, Lord, um, that is sin. You must deliver me from it. Um, and I don't have to always do that kind of work of like, where did that come from? How am I feeding that? What have I done for this? Sometimes these ari- these desires arise unwanted in us, but there there's a temptation to say because they arrive unwanted, they are not sin. Mm-hmm. I didn't set out to be same sex attracted. Someone might say, and you and therefore. It's not a sin that I need to be repenting of. And 
to all of us and say, again, one of my major sins is, um, I used to say it's frustration, but then um, I, used, I realized it's really just anger. Um, and, um, you know, I'd say... Uh, frustration softer. Yes, that's right. I'm just frustrated. No, no, you're just an angry person. Um, or coveting. Um, I have perfected the skill of coveting. Um, and, uh, you know, you say, well, I, I didn't... I, that coveting arose within me. It still needs to be repented of. You didn't, I didn't sit out one day and say, I want to be a coveter, and I'm nurturing coveting, although, to be honest with you, I do nurture coveting um, too much. Um, but uh, that desire can arise with, apart from an act of my will. And so the, the desire itself is, is, is sin even if I don't act on it. Um, and and again, this goes this this transforms us from just being behavioralistic to getting into the heart mm-hmm. and saying, "Lord, that is something that is sin properly, not that I have committed, but that has arisen from my corrupted nature, from the remaining sin that dwells in me, and in and of itself needs to be repented of, even if I didn't ask for it, and even if I didn't act on it, it is in and of itself sin." Um, and therefore, um, the you know this last sentence: these desires are not mere weaknesses or inclinations to sin, but are themselves idolatrous um, and sinful. Nevertheless, we recognize that many persons who experience same-sex attraction describe their desires as arising in them unbidden and unwanted. And I've I've had many conversations. Um, with people who wrestle with same-sex attraction, who will just say that I don't want this. Yeah, like, this is I don't want this to be what I'm I'm wrestling with, um, and it's like that's we appreciate that. Um, I most of us don't want the sins that we are. Re- if we're wrestling with, if we're actively wrestling yeah. with sin, none of us would say I want this. There are times when we do nurture it and give into it and cultivate it, but. If we're wrestling with it, the reason we're wrestling with it is because we have said this is sin, and we would need Jesus to work to to deliver us from it. Um, and so we also recognize that the presence of same-sex attraction is often owing to many factors, and this, there's good science behind this, um, which always include our own sin nature and may include being sinned against in the past. Um, the story after story after story of, of same-sex attracted people who um, you know may have been or, or will tell you I have, part of my story is I've been sexually abused. Yeah. But you also find people who that's not part of their story, right? So you can't just or, or I had a bad parental figure or whatever. You know there there are a variety of reasons, um, but at underneath all of them is uh, a corrupted nature. Yes, yeah, always includes. Our own sin nature, and mm-hmm. may include being sinned against. Yes. Okay. As with any sinful pattern or propensity, which may include disordered desires, extramarital lust, pornographic addictions, and all abusive sexual behavior, the actions of others, though never finally determinative, may be significant and influential. That's just a pastoral nod to like when you're sinned against, particularly when it comes to sexual sin. It really messes up the core of our being. 
Um, and we can't say it's just it's just concupiscence. It's just the corruption of our desires and the remaining sin that's left in us. We also have to recognize that there are ways that we're sinned against that shape us as well. That sounds like a conversation stopper. That's just concupiscence. That's just concupiscence. Um, yes, I would not suggest you use that in everyday language. Yeah, but it was too many letters to get a personalized license plate. Well, it's, it is funny to watch people try to pronounce it. There are different ways even to pronounce it. This should move us to compassion and understanding. Moreover, it is true for all of us that sin can be both unchosen bondage and idolatrous rebellion at the same time. We all experience sin at times as a kind of involuntary servant servitude. And they quote Romans Sorry. 7 here. Sorry, you misspoke there. Uh, kind of a voluntary servitude. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, kind of a voluntary servitude. Um, I don't do the things that I want to do. This is what Paul says. I don't do the things. that Sometimes I find myself doing the things I don't want to do, and I don't understand. What is that? And his conclusion is it's sin at work in me. Um, it you know it is there is an internal enemy because sin isn't just things that we do, uh, but a corruption of our nature. And sometimes he even uses speaks of it as uh, he um, he uses um, anthropomorphic language. He speaks of it like it's a character, um, like sin is a character that is in us. Or and he uses the language of power or enemy. Um, that he sort of perf- personifies that power. It's like, hey, there's this enemy that's in you. It's a power that's dwelling in you as well. Do you think, um, just really, really quick aside, do you think that um, it happens often, ever, whatever, uh, if if one were to think about their indwelling sin outside of the context of biblical understanding of indwelling sin and personify it, do you think that that sets the stage for, let's say, a diagnosis of maybe a, a schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder? Oh, uh, that let's save that for a different... That would be a really interesting discussion. Um, I would not want to address that here. You don't have a quick yes or no? Uh, no, <laughs> not a quick yes or no. That's a definitional um, issue. we got to define terms before we can give quick yes and no's. Um, Okay, uh, statement six on temptation. We affirm that Scripture speaks of temptation in different ways. And this is uh, James 1. Um, uh, these categories of uh, it's going to be external and internal temptation. Um, this is the same word. Um, root word is used by James in two different ways in James 1. In James 1, 2, um, uh, you know, he, he talks about it externally and then quickly begins to talk about it as an internal temptation. So it goes on. So the, it speaks, Scripture speaks of temptation in different ways. There are some temptation God gives us in the form of morally neutral trials and other temptation God never gives us because they arise from within as morally illicit desires. When temptations come from without, the temptation itself is not sin unless we enter into that temptation. But when the temptation arises from within, it is our own act and rightly called sin. This is, you had referenced um, Hebrews 
um, saying that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are. I read that as that external temptation or trial is mm-hmm. oftentimes the way it's translated. And he has in mind there that um, that Jesus was going through um, the wilderness as Israel was tempted in the wilderness or tried in the wilderness. Um, and uh, in terms of external trials, um, Jesus was tried um, externally in every way that we are yet without sin. Um, therefore, he's able to present himself as the true and living sacrifice um, uh, who is able to make perfect those who are being sanctified. Again, an important distinction um, from Hebrews 10. The way the Christian life works um, is that, that God makes perfect those who are being sanctified, that our justification always precedes our sanctification. So this is the way James says this in James 1. Um, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So that language of, of trials, same root for word for temptation, that there, there are these contexts in which you find yourself, um, and these these trials actually then produce the intended result. These come from God. They produce the intended result of, of producing steadfastness so that we could be lacking nothing. But then James is like, okay, so that's going on outside of you, but all it often what it does is it returns it should be returning repentance because it reveals something that's going on inside of you this is verse 13 from James 1 let no one say when he is being tempted i am being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And you see what he's saying is like there's there's external temptation that comes upon us, and when that happens, it met with the internal temptation of our own desires that then produce the sin. Um, and so you might you know walk into we were talking earlier. Um, walk into Target, no one leaves Target with what they went to buy. Um, You always leave Target with, um, oftentimes, with what you didn't go to buy, and then you get home and you're like, I just went to get shampoo, but I I have bedding and workout shorts and a new baby carrier, but I forgot the shampoo. So you walk into, you know, and the external temptation that's before you of seeing all of these things um, that you now want is met with a covetous, heart and so you give into it um and and oftentimes what happens is you convince yourself that you actually you justify that that internal temptation and that's what comes from that when temptation arises from within it is our own act and is rightly called sin nevertheless there is an important degree of moral difference between temptation to sin and giving into sin even when the temptation is itself and expressing of indwelling sin. While our goal is the weakening and lessening of internal temptations to sins, Christians should feel their greatest responsibility not for the fact that such temptations occur, 
but for thoroughly and immediately fleeing and resisting the temptations when they arise. We can avoid entering into temptation by refusing to internally ponder and entertain the proposal and desire to actual sin. And so Uh, that, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. And that kind of sidesteps that whole getting stuck in the the doldrum of, is this internal? Is this external? Yeah. It's, it's, well, just that's not, flee. Yeah, that's not the right question that's or right. the right focus. Flee from it. Like like Joseph um, when tempted by Potiphar's wife. Take your just clothes off and flee. Run. <laughs> run. Okay. And if she grabs your clothes, run faster Okay. Um, and flee from it. Um, so that, you know, it's a good... Uh, there was, I'm, you know, I'm sure um, that we don't have any indication from that particular narrative, but from the rest of the Bible, I'm sure um, that the external temptation was met with some internal desire um, at that mm. point. Um, but he, instead of giving in to that desire, like David did on the rooftop with Bathsheba, um, uh, Joseph flees from that temptation. Um, and and I think again, this is language from from Hebrews um, and 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 Peter. I think they probably had that particularly that uh, the image of of Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife in mind when they say you know flee um, from temptation. Um, uh, a good example uh, of this is as Peter says, "I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain." From the passions of your flesh, and that language of passions is is the language of desire. Um, it's epithumia, um, strong desire. When Jesus said, "I strongly desire to," I've longed for the day when I can eat the supper with you. Like this is, I can't, I've been waiting for this day. Uh, same language, this very strong, passionate desire. And so he says, Peter says, "I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, there's the language of identity to abstain. There's the language of resistance." from the passions of the flesh, not just from the outworking of sins, but the actual desires of the heart that arise from within you, which wage war against your soul. Like these things are coming up within all of us and are trying to destroy us. And so keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, it's a beautiful statement that the Christian who is fighting against internal temptations and their own desires say to the watching world, there's more to this Jesus than I once realized because they're just not protesting or waving flags or sending out statements. But there's a power at work in these people where their actual desires are being transformed by Jesus and that I'm not finding any place else in this world. Yeah. Um, and therefore, they will, you know, that's the way to keep your conduct honorable. Guard the de- at the desire level and, f- and flee from those. Um, so we're, we're at the halfway point. Do you want to, uh, to break this up into two? Um, no, I think I want to finish because I think we have really one more. Um, statement, and then um, we can fly through some of the rest of them. Okay. Um, 
uh, I, I'd said earlier this is really a, a discussion on this this debate in the PCA has really been a debate on sanctification, the nature and the nature of desires and what it means to be a human being. So it goes on in, in the statement on temptation, without some distinction between the illicit temptations that arise in us due to original sin and the willful giving over to sin, um, Christians will be too discouraged to make every effort at growth and godliness and will feel like failures in their necessary efforts to be holy as God is holy. I think, in my experience as a pastor, this is where Christians get most discouraged because they think these desires should be completely gone by mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, I'm acting on these desires very differently than I once did 20 years ago. The desire might still arise within me, but I am not nurturing it act, or acting on it to the same degree that I once did. And um, and so they're making a very pastoral move here to say, don't get discouraged when the the temptation and desire still arise within you. When you look at yourself and say, you know, when I was 25, I probably would have acted on that temptation and and sinned externally. But now I'm fleeing from it. Um, I'm putting it to death quicker. When I act on it, I repent quicker. Um, I believe the gospel more deeply. When I do act on it and sin against God, um, those are all better measures of progress in the Christian life than it is of the existence of that desire in and of itself. And and many people I know get very discouraged when they're like, I, I still want the same things that I want. And after talking through it, you're like, well, you don't want it as often. Yeah. You don't want it to the same degree. You are much more capable of fleeing from it. You see it more as as sin where you once entertained it as a good thing. All these things are much better um, evidences of the Spirit's work in you than the complete eradication of yeah. sinful desire. How long has it been since you've done this? Yeah. Which is an important question, right? I mean, because it's an indicator of that, yes. uh, that process. But um, it's not a binary, I used to do this, now totally gone, which can be the case. Right? Yes. Yeah, in, yes. In, in some I mean, we shouldn't disbelieve someone that says that necessarily. No. No, and I, I think um yes, uh, hypothetically that can be the case and that's the language of can. Can it be the case? Is it often the case that um instead what we experience is a weakening and lessening? That's the language of the confession of faith, a weakening and lessening of the desire rather than a complete eradication of it. And that weakening and lessening might be, you know, I used to experience this every day, now I experience it once a year. Now I experience it once every 10 years. Or I might, it used to be that I experienced it every five minutes, now it's every 45 minutes. So weakening and lessening of the temptation and the desire and a better ability to deal with it when it presents itself rather than a complete eradication of it. Um, and there are at times there in all of our lives there are there are categories of sin that God has completely done away with in our lives, or mostly better say that mostly done away with in our lives. Fits of rage, um, you know. For some, um, I can remember. I've said this often. I, I remember, um, you know, when I was in. Uh, my wife always says I have little man's disease when I was when I was younger. Um, you know, I would I would love to get in fist fights um with people. Um which is probably pretty funny when people look at me and go, You um and and 
once I became a Christian on the basketball court in intramurals, um, I got into it with a guy, and I experienced conviction that I had never experienced in my life over that particular sin. He must have been a big guy. Uh, he was. Uh, <laughs> wasn't uh, the biggest guys, but he was definitely bigger than me. Because um, little men disease doesn't pick on people smaller than you. Um, and uh, that was the, that was the last time, right? So that 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 particular acting on that sin was pretty quickly done away with in my life. Um, I'm not, you know, tempted into fistfights anymore. But there is still a root of anger that manifests itself um, and has has very much lessened and weakened over my life. So the external sin, um, that particular external sin is is done away with. Um, But I realized that the root of that sin is such that it could come up again at some point. Um, But I think God has brought me so far in my sanctification at this point where the desire might still be there. The acting on it um, has just not been an issue since that last time. Um, when I was 21 years old. Um, and that goes on. Lastly, um, God is pleased with our sincere obedience, even though it may be accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Um, because uh, he, he appreciates the effort, even if, um, because that's, that effort is by faith. I'm acting on um, I'm acting by faith in the Lord Jesus and His promises to me, and so therefore God is is pleased. I've lost my place Where with that. We? That's the last sentence in Statement Six, right before ah, sanctification. Okay, okay. sanctification. Statement Six on sanctification. This will be our last heavy lifting. Um, then I'll make a few passing comments on some of the other categories. We affirm that Christians should flee immoral behavior and not yield to temptation. By the power of the Holy Spirit working through the ordinary means of grace, and by ordinary means of grace, word, sacrament, and prayer, fellowship, these are the ordinary means by which God um, um, channels His grace into our lives, distributes His grace to His people. By the ordinary means of grace, Christians should seek to wither, weaken, and put to death the underlying idolatries and sinful desires that lead to sinful behavior. The goal is not just consistent fleeing from and regular resistance to temptation, but the diminishment and even the end of the occurrences of sinful desires through the reordering of the loves of one's heart towards Christ. Through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, we can make substantial progress in the practice of true holiness without which... No one will see the Lord. Right. That's that's um, the answers two of your previous questions: one on mortification, um, and one on um, can can we make progress, and is it reasonable to expect that these things, some of these things, will go away? And again, you're making substantial progress, um, and and at times, um, even the end of the occurrences of sinful desires. Right. So, not saying that that's. That's normative, that all of our desires are going to be done away with. All of our sinful desires are going to be done away with. But it is a reasonable expectation that some of our sinful desires in this life could come to an end. Nevertheless, this process of sanctification, even when the Christian is diligent and fervent in the application of the means of grace, will always be accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. And so sometimes, sometimes the work of sanctification um, feels like a game of whack-a-mole, where you're like, "Well, I, I put that one down, and but the, where did that come from? 
like, uh, okay, well, I'll put that one down. And where did that? No, I'll apply Jesus and his gospel to this one. Um, and so that's sort of they're just describing experientially what that feels like. There's many infer- weaknesses and imperfections, but with the spirit and the flesh warring against each other until final glorification. This this struggle, in other words, is evidence that when someone struggles with their sin at this level, that is evidence that they are in Christ. And because the spirit is warring against the flesh, they will make progress. But that progress will not be complete until final glorification. The believer who struggles with same-sex attraction, now we're applying it back to the issue, the believer who struggles with same-sex attraction should expect to see the regenerate nature increasingly overcome the remaining corruption of the flesh. But this progress will often be slow and uneven. To which every Christian should say, Amen. Um, thank you that God, that justification precedes sanctification, that we're made righteous before we actually produce righteousness in our lives. Moreover, the process of mortification and vivification involves the whole person, not simply unwanted sexual desires, right? Every part of us. Not we're not just focusing our doctrine of sanctification simply on sexual desires and same sex attraction. This is the whole person that has to be dealt with. Um, every part of us needs to be remade by Jesus. Moreover, or the aim of sanctification in one's sexual life. Notice, notice again what they're doing is they're like this is ha- this is for everybody. But we are addressing a particular issue, so we're going to jump back to that. The aim of sanctification when sexual life cannot be reduced to attraction to persons of the opposite sex, though some persons may experience movement in that direction, but rather involves growing in grace and perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. In other words, we're not after someone who's struggling with homosexual desire to see that simply transformed into heterosexual desire but to see all desires transformed mm. so that Jesus is the ultimate end and goal and therefore produces holiness in our lives. Um, and so holiness may look like um, heterosexual desire. It may just look like dealing with this particular temptation a little more faithfully with the promises of Jesus. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. You know, and I think about things like, Reparative therapy, yeah, and in the the false dichotomy that comes out of considering that as a as a quote solution, mm-hmm. um, the false dichotomy is often either well, this is one's orientation; you can't change it, or mm-hmm. uh, I, I went uh, one attended. Reparative therapy for a month and and nothing has changed. Yeah, it didn't work. Yeah, it didn't work. So this whole thing is a farce. Yeah. Um, so that's why I appreciate the slow and uneven language here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we said we'd skip over the statement on impeccability. Um, essentially, we're saying that Jesus did not have the possibility of sinning um, because he was the incarnate Son of God. Um, that's part of this discussion, but a part that I would imagine that most people aren't familiar with. So we'll skip that. Um, 
on identity. This is an important one, um, but I think uh, it's such a clear statement that we'll just read it. We affirm that the believer's most important identity is found in Christ. Christians ought not to understand themselves, define themselves, and describe themselves, or ought to um, understand, define, and describe themselves in light of their union with Christ and their identity as regenerate, justified, holy children of God. That's who I am. To juxtapose identities rooted in sinful desires along with the term Christian is inconsistent with biblical language and undermines the spiritual reality that we are new creations in Christ. Um, In other words, uh, every single addict who has ever sat in my office or I've ever sat across the coffee table, I've said the exact same thing to them. And they're they're simply saying, this is just true for any of us. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a coveting Christian. I'm a Christian who wrestles with and fights against the sin of coveting. I'm not a gay Christian. I'm a Christian who wrestles against and fights against by the power of Christ. I'm adopted son in him, and I'm in union with Jesus. Therefore, I'm fighting against my same-sex attraction. Right? Nevertheless, being honest about our sin struggle is important. Right? This is, again, pastorally brilliant because you don't just want to say, don't do that. Say, look, we got to wrestle with these things. And so being honest about our sin struggles is important. We talked about earlier, John, you and I, before the podcast, how many of, of um, I, how often I have seen um, people leave the church um, because of their same sex mm-hmm. attraction, because they simply couldn't find a place to process and talk through it. Um, and uh, they believed that was true. It probably wasn't true, but they believed that was true. Um, and so there's no way to bring the gospel. It's very difficult to bring the gospel unless you get a context where people are are open and honest and, and willing to to talk about things. Um, too many Christians hide um, because they are afraid of the condemnation that they will receive from other Christians. And honestly, um, that fear is warranted. Um, so while Christians should not identify with their sin so as to embrace it or to seek to base their identity on it, Christians ought to acknowledge their sin in an effort to overcome it. Confess your sins one to another, James says. There's a difference between speaking of sinful desire as uh, – there's a difference between speaking about a phenomenological facet of a person's sin-stained reality – that's a mouthful – and employing the language of sinful desires as a personal identity marker. In other words, it's one thing to say, "Look, I'm struggling with this particular sin." Um, you know, you know, however that word comes out, it's another thing to say, "That's who I am." Right. So we got to differentiate that. Um, some of that's a language game, and I think some of that's just giving people the room to process. You know, to use the wrong words, as I often say, it's okay to use the wrong words. Um, which, as, which, so the um, a big struggle of our our world today is identity and and who gets to i who gets to define the identity you know yeah so what i what i'm part of what i'm taking from this is that if we are in Christ we don't have we don't get to wave a different flag yes that's exactly right um you know the <laughs> The identity uh, for those who are in Christ um, is um, is multifaceted from son to slave, right? That broad spectrum. And as a slave to Jesus, you don't get the right to define any part of who you are. He has laid claim to you. You are in union with Him, and He gets to tell you who you really are. Um, and and we so we don't. This is not just don't name yourself by your sin, but don't name yourself yeah. um, at all. Um, let what Jesus says about you be the way you see yourself. 
um, rather than by your own experience or ought rather than experience. Um, uh, and this is, this is gold language. Um, that is, we name our sins but are not named by them. And I think that's straight from Kevin DeYoung. Uh, that's his, those are his words. Um, moreover, we recognize that there are some secondary identities when not rooted in sinful desires or struggle against the flesh that can legitimately affirmed along with our primary identity as Christians. For example, the distinctions between male and female, between various nationalities and people groups are not eradicated in becoming Christians but serve to magnify the glory of God and his plan of salvation. And here on language, um, they simply say uh, two things. Well, we're going to skim this instead of read it. Um, it's uh, we uh, affirm uh, churches should are wise to avoid the term gay Christian, although gay can mean a variety. The semantic range for gay can be pretty broad. Um, it's not helpful, and so we'd advise against that. Um, even if same-sex attraction is just as loaded in other words, um, it's still inappropriate to juxtapose sinful desire or any other sinful desire as an identity marker. Nevertheless, we recognize that some Christians may use the term gay in an effort to be more readily understood by non-Christians. The word gay is common in our culture, and we, do, we don't think it's wise for churches to police every use of the term. And so don't use the we, – we'd advise you not to use the term. It is not helpful, but we also think it's helpful not to become word police. Okay. Um, and uh, um, so um, the good – you know, just give, give people the room to say the wrong things, to use the wrong words, to say the wrong things. Um, and this is directed towards the average person in the pew, um, not towards um, an officer in the church. Uh, particularly, that's they mostly have in mind someone who's trying to, you know, don't. If someone comes in and you're sitting down, it's just, you know, I think I think I'm gay. You know, like don't use that word. You're a new creation in Christ. You don't lead with the condemnation yeah. of that, but instead be like, what do you mean by that? What are you wrestling with? And then you can bring in these categories of desire, um, and all of a sudden Jesus becomes the answer. Uh, spiritual friendship is statement eleven. We affirm um, that. You know, we don't do friendships very well in our culture. Um, nevertheless, uh, some within um, the gay community have proposed um, what they call a contractual marriage-like friendship that is non-sexual. Yes, and we're saying uh, don't do that. That's not that is not a good solution to the problem. Um, and so, you know, don't. That is not a, a sound and sensible solution to the problem. Um, and nor do we, and this is, I think, important, we do not consider same-sex attraction as a gift in itself, nor do we think the sin struggle or any sin struggle should be celebrated in the church. Um, and so some here behind this is some have referred to themselves as sexual minorities, and therefore, um, you know, I, uh, this gives me a particular insight into Jesus and therefore is a gift. And they're like, no, mm. uh, everything we've talked through up until this point kind of puts that in a different category and therefore it is the struggle itself the desire itself is in itself sin and should not be celebrated um and also i i personally think the the language of someone who's same-sex attraction as being in a sexual minority um is is terribly unhelpful and, and often untrue um of plenty of people who um are single and wrestling with 
um, you know, fighting against their sexual desires for health reasons, uh, couples who've lived in, um, you know, sexless marriages and been faithful to Jesus, uh, widows, widowers, you may just go down this list and um, it is never helpful to put ourselves in other categories. And so they're in this um, statement, they're dealing with, with both those things and saying, um, you know, same-sex attraction um, and creating contractual likes, non-marriage, non-sexual relations. That's not good and wise. Don't do that. But also don't celebrate um, your particular um, same-sex attraction as a gift, but rather something that needs to be put to death and mortified. Lastly, let me end here. Uh, if you've listened this far, this is um, there's been some really good stuff, but this is really good. We affirm repentance and hope, versus where we're ending. We affirm that the entire life of the believer is one of repentance. Never stop repenting because sin never goes away um, until we're on this side of the other side of new heavens and new earth. Where we have mistreated those who struggle with same-sex attraction or any other sinful desire, we call ourselves to repentance. Where we have nurtured or made peace with sinful thoughts, desires, words, or deeds, we call ourselves to repentance. Where we have heaped upon others misplaced shame or have not dealt well with necessary God-given shame, we call ourselves to repentance. Right? This is uh, it's just simply saying and we, just because we don't struggle with same-sex attraction doesn't mean we've gotten it all right, um, that we've done, some, we've done some things wrong. Nevertheless, as we call ourselves to the evangelical grace of repentance, evangelical grace, gospel-driven grace, um, that leads to repentance, we see many reasons for rejoicing. We give thanks for penitent believers who, though they continue to struggle with same-sex attraction, are living lives of chastity and obedience. These brothers and sisters can serve as courageous examples of faith and faithfulness as they pursue Christ with a long obedience and gospel dependence. We also give thanks for ministries and churches within our denomination that minister to sexual strugglers of all kinds with biblical truth and grace. Most importantly, we give thanks for the gospel that can save and transform the worst of sinners, older brothers and younger brothers, tax collectors and Pharisees, insiders and outsiders. We rejoice in 10,000 spiritual blessings that are ours when we turn from sin by the power of the Spirit, trust in the promises of God, and rest upon Christ alone for salvation, justification, sanctification, and eternal life. We will end with those good words, life-giving words. You've been listening to For the Church, a conversation with Paul Joyner and John Kelly. If you have ideas for future episodes, please send us an email or a message. You can find out more about Zion Church at zioncolumbia.org, and please visit us on Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for worship.